Hello, everyone. This is Paulo Española, and you're listening to Hidden Apron Radio, coming at you from Astoria, Queens, in the midst of the pandemic. We are back, sorta. You know, it seems just like yesterday when we signed up to produce this podcast using a microphone perched atop an apple crate in my bedroom, and damn, time has flown. It's been over four years since we taped our first episode and a little over a year since we published our last. If it's your first time joining us, welcome. This food-focused podcast started kind of on a whim um, after I had noticed that the majority of conversations around food at the time seemed to focus on just one specific slice. You know, farming, dining, the life of chefs, and there wasn't really a show that tied together the many facets and layers of food together. I've had many food-related conversations with folks that meandered into other rich topics that I just wished I could share with others. And so this podcast, on top of all our other work as Hidden Apron, whether it's the pop-up dinners, the food writing, etc., was kind of our attempt at a more multifaceted look at food. Of course, things have changed in the last four years, and now we have a lot of good content coming out. And you know, so for those who've been longtime listeners who've wondered, what the hell happened to this show? Let me get to that in a minute. In fact, this very episode you're listening to has been in the works for over a year. You know, over the last 32 episodes, we've been blessed with the opportunity to break bread and chat with some of the people we look up to in the world of food. And I use the term food very broadly here because we've certainly expanded our view on what we talk about when we talk about food. You know, what started out as a show that was meant to just highlight the act of cooking has ended up covering topics as diverse as farming, philosophy, economics, engineering, religion, culture, and everything in between. We've recorded across the country, and even an international guest from my bedroom here in Queens. We've had to find gaps in between our busy day jobs to just get these shows out to you, and we're grateful for the support and especially the feedback. When we first set out on this side project of a side project you could say we didn't intentionally set any goals you know we didn't talk about the number of downloads you wanted to get or subscribers and we didn't even have a set schedule and so it's always a pleasant surprise when someone especially our friends tell us like yo man we've actually been listening in in a way this was our way of scratching our our itch so instead we wanted to make sure we find people with the most interesting often overlooked stories and viewpoints, ask them the right questions, and get their ideas out into the world. We hope that's what we ended up doing and are continuing to do so, seeing as people out there are still finding and listening to these episodes years after they're recording. But, of course, uh, life happened. I moved up in my tech day job and um, this past February subsequently finally quit it after I found out that, you know, it just no longer gave me enough time to devote to my passions in food. This was, of course, just my luck because it was weeks before New York City went into lockdown due to the coronavirus. And since then, the world as we know it seems unrecognizable. It's hard to really imagine what hidden apron or even what I'm going to be doing is going to look like in the coming months. And I find myself constantly asking the same questions. Will there be a market for pop-up dinners? What will restaurants and bars even look like? Will they still be a place of comfort, refuge, and off-screen human connection? Will there be opportunities to pursue my long-held fancy of bartending outside of my kitchen? You know, what do we even talk about on this show anymore? Where do we go from here? So what was then supposed to be a season closer of sorts, this episode is, is now a sort of reflection, something I'm doing more of these days while I'm cooped up at home. So today I'm not really interviewing anyone, and instead I'll take a look back at our episodes and share some of my thoughts on what I think this all means for us during a time when nothing seems to make sense. Part of these thoughts are me continuing to refine and articulate what it is about food that I find so powerful and keeps me coming back um, and talking about it. What about it pushed us to move beyond just cooking at home? For our friends and family, to the dozens of pop-ups we've held, to launching the podcast, to pitching food publications, producing cooking workshops on Instagram, even contributing to the cookbook last year. More than that, though, this is my attempt at distilling the collective wisdom of guests who are far wiser than myself into these broader themes and what that could mean to you, not just as a diner, but as a human being. So let's jump right into it in these broader themes. Let's start with the first theme. 
And that is that across all of our guests, we learn that food is universal and it's a very powerful tool for breaking boundaries between and within people. But why food? You know, it's, it's a question that takes a bit of digging since when I try to describe this show or even Hidden Apron itself to people, I, I mention and keep repeating that it's not just about food. Food is simply the language and vehicle we've chosen to talk about, given its pervasiveness in our lives. And what this show does seek to explore then are the big questions in the guise of food. You know, food is ripe for the picking, pun fully intended, and there are many ways to approach it. You know, whether you're a chef, a writer, an activist, a healer, etc. And it becomes a very uh, relatable topic. You know, food is a major driver of our economy. It's the cause of countless wars. It's a way to unite or divide people. And it's defined humanity from time immemorial. You know, even during times when food is conspicuously absent, for example, during the holy month of Ramadan when Muslims worldwide fast, we can't help but talk about food. We did an episode with Doha Salam and James Anunsacion, who, even with that shared culture between them, approached the topic of Ramadan from very different sides. While Doha took a dietitian's look at the effects of fasting on the body, James highlighted how dinner table conversations can be teachable moments, not just to share food, but also traditions and values. You know, and it's this rich universality. The fact that food isn't literally everything we do that ties all of our shows and our hidden apron projects together. I think it's why I personally believe that food can be used to solve most of the world's problems and that you can find few things better to focus on than what's on your plate. Food's universality also reminds us that many of the boundaries we place within and around ourselves are largely unnecessary or illusory. Nowhere were these illusory boundaries between people as evident when we asked multiple guests to try to define authentic Filipino food. Filipino because, well, yours truly is of Filipino descent, so it's a more familiar topic for me. I, I realized what it meant after this experience of going from New York to Manila, opening up a place in Malate, and then coming back here. It finally dawned on me what authenticity means. And for me, it's whatever nature gives you, right? It's what grows around you and what you do with it. But what makes it authentic is your palate. Because no matter where you are, no matter what kitchen you cook in, if you take what nature gives you and you look at, you follow nature and the flavors that it gives you, and then you cook with your palate, that you grew up with, that you develop wherever you were, then it is Filipino food. That was my mentor, Tita Amy Bessa of Purple Yam in Brooklyn and Malate, talking about her definition of authenticity, especially authentic Filipino food. And I think the sentiment applies to all cooking, no matter what culture. She made me realize how deeply personal authenticity really is and how much time we waste arguing about like the right kind of authenticity. Sharwin T of the longest running cable food show in the Philippines, Curiosity Got the Chef, recounts for me not just the similarities between cultures thousands of miles apart, but how the fluid nature of our borders and history make trying to pin down a specific definition of any cuisine difficult. I was in Little Senegal in Harlem and my friend and I ate at African Keen. It's a Senegalese restaurant. And their appetizer was fried spring rolls. And I'm like, dude, there's no spring rolls in Africa. And the guy says, no, we do. And this is how we make it because Senegal was a colony of France. And when they were fighting the war, they brought in Vietnamese people to fight for them. And so some of these intermarried and they started making spring rolls. Yeah. So I'm like, how do you even account for that like you don't so i cannot imagine people in senegal want spring rolls with a fish sauce dip but they do or you know one of the dishes they had was uh, a lamb stew with peanut butter and it tasted like kare kare. <laughs> it tasted like kare kare man like a lamb kare kare you see senegal and filipinos they i don't think they had a significant history together but their dishes sort of taste similar Yes, 
we should take the time to learn about our food's provenance and, and the rich culture that it has helped define. We should pay respects to tradition and call out cultural appropriation. But, you know, for me, I just, I find it far less helpful to create more fences delineating what things are or aren't than focusing on how the similarities can help us bridge gaps of understanding between another, right? And I think part of the difficulty is due to the inherent limits of just human language. You know, we don't have enough words to describe the things we want to describe. And I think that's one of the reasons I did an episode with my Portuguese tutor, Isabel Mora, about how language learning can help you eat better. So if we want to create a boundaryless world that is united in a real way, and not just in some kumbaya, looks good on paper kind of deal, I think we must go beyond words and straight to the dining table. You know, our tagline, after all, is break bread, break boundaries. The power of food to unite, as Sharwin just recounted, is something I've experienced through all my travels. Um, and I think a lot of people who have been privileged enough to travel before the coronavirus outbreak will share that sentiment where, you know, I'm often finding dishes as perfect places to find common ground, even if a language barrier exists, you know, whether we're discussing stewing techniques with a gregarious Brazilian family, comparing icy desserts in a Cambodian wet market, or discovering the links between Portuguese and Japanese cuisine in Lisbon. Cynthia Glansberg, a friend of mine who was the founder of One Tea, who has traveled quite extensively, um, learning about tea all over the world, shared one of her experiences about how the simple tea leaf, which by the way is the same plant all over the world, led to some of her most profound conversations. I was going from London to Nepal to go work on a tea farm, and I was in my Uber going to the airport in London, and I like to believe I'm really uh, strong and powerful and independent. But I had this kind of breakdown in the car and I was like, what am I doing? Like, shouldn't I just be going home? Like, aren't I done with this whole thing? Like, why am I doing this now? And so I kind of had a little breakdown in the in the Uber to the airport. And the Uber driver was like, I guess he noticed that I was getting kind of nervous or whatever. I was sitting next to him. And so he started asking me, where am I going? What yeah. am I doing? And I kind of started explaining uh, that I was going to Nepal to learn about tea. And he's like, oh my God. He's like, I... I'm from Jordan and we drink sage tea and he explained how his mom does it, all this stuff about tea and he was so excited and he goes, you know, I hated it, London when I came here. He's yeah. like, I did not feel safe. I did not feel comfortable. I didn't feel like anyone knew me or liked me. I had no family here. And the first person who actually made him feel comfortable was this man who invited him over for tea. And they sat there for hours and talked about how the British do it with milk and then, you know, how he does it with sage. He ended up going back and like bringing the recipe of his, that his mom makes and making him tea of his culture and they connected over that. Then I went from being kind of nervous to like bawling crying. <laughs> In the Uber. In the Uber. You're one of those. <laughs> this is so beautiful. This is what I'm doing this for. Like yeah. that's amazing. But yeah, he got kind of just met him at the, the perfect moment to make me feel like, okay, I'm taking this this risk, but mm -hmm. I'm not I'm not wrong on the idea. And that's a big part of what I love about tea and what like what drives me with it is the fact that it is this one beverage that comes from this one plant mm -hmm. and that no matter where you are mm -hmm. in the world, people are connected to it in some way, be it a different, you know, ways that they do it. There's a lot of different things that might change, but mm -hmm. in essence, it's the same drink. It's the same plant. Talking about food is the quickest way I've seen to make a connection, whether it's asking a stranger at a bar what they're eating or asking someone in the street where you can get good food while exploring a new neighborhood. I mean, it's, it's certainly a faster connector than religion, political ideology, or even language. You know, So, so why food? Because as Thich Nhat Hanh, um, who is a Vietnamese Buddhist monk, so eloquently once wrote, we see the universe in a grain of rice. Food is in everything, and through food, we really can create a better, more understanding world. So while this illustrates the boundaries we seek to break between people, uh, another recurring theme from our guests are the boundaries they choose to blur within themselves. Many of our guests' thoughts are just as much about living a rich and delicious life as it is about eating deliciously. A big part of that is cultivating a multifaceted life and having a deep collection of interests and dreams. Ricky, my co-founder, and I dislike having only like one label to work with. And we don't necessarily say we're just the food guys, 
quote unquote. I mean, I, for one, have worked as a public accountant before holding multiple roles at a software enterprise company, but I also host pop-ups. I cater, write, and spend a lot of time learning other languages, philosophy, gymnastics. Ricky, on the other hand, works at an airline company. He has a travel blog, is into music, design, fitness, fashion, and um, lately fungi cultivation, amongst other things. Both of us are attracted towards people who likewise defy simple one-line descriptions and job titles. You know, the, the, the people who live in between the dashes and slashes, you could say. A lot of them have multiple side hustles and former lives, like the gents of Lola Rose's catering company in Minnesota, who included a server who moonlighted as a singer, uh, a teacher who was also an artist, a banker, and a line cook. And they weren't the only ones. I was a furniture designer back in L.A. A civil engineer. So I went from doing my bachelor's in civil engineering, then I did uh, civil environmental. Got my master's in that, did research on pervious pavements. I was an acquisition finance and leverage finance banker at that time, so I was super busy. I graduated from architecture. I stayed in the field for seven years before we decided to open a restaurant. With my background in accounting and finance, you know, I was working in a uh, environmental remediation company as a I started as a data entry clerk, was there for five years, and mm. was promoted to be a uh, accounts receivable manager. I was majoring in literature and philosophy at the time, and, and I, um, I, I want to be a writer. Those were Yana Gilbuena, the traveling chef of Salo Series, Jabra Albihani, the founder of digital platform Comida, Ayesha Veriu, founder of farming community-focused advancement for rural kids, John Ng and Lena Go of Zenbox Izakaya in Minnesota, and Chef Lenny Russo of the famed Heartland restaurant also in Minnesota. And this characteristic goes for almost every single one of our guests. And I think while there's some truth to the term jack-of-all-trades, master of none, um, what a lot of our guests really show are how important it is to have a wide range of interests that can lend to your specialty. You know, as a kid, I always thought that in order to get into food, I had to study the culinary arts and become a chef, not knowing that the skills of writing, finance, sound production, and many seemingly unrelated ones would be what has made Hidden Apron what it is today. This diversity in thought in intentionally blurring the lines between our compartmentalized selves is key to living a delicious life and making an impact. This, however, doesn't mean you have to be some robot who doesn't sleep and has 30 side hustles, which, yes, granted, is a temptation I resist living in hustle culture NYC. Just as there's strength in diversity, there is strength in keeping it small. We must learn to not only worship the god of large, but also the goddess of small, as Mary Cleaver, a pioneer in the local food movement, who for many years ran the Green Table restaurant in Chelsea Market States in one of our episodes. This means not tying your identity to one thing so resolutely, you know, for me, food, for example, um, that you can find it hard to take a step back and reflect honestly when things get tough or when some newfangled thing enters your line of sight. So how then do we cultivate this spirit of exploration? How do we balance the focus with a bit of wandering? I will admit that during the time of this recording, the pandemic is still raging across America, and my answer to this question on focus and exploration is somewhat uh, non-existent. I think for many of us, the focus so far is just making it to the next day. But I, I do know what's helped in the past. For example, from a technical perspective, I use tools like Evernote to tag and summarize articles I've read to try to find concepts that link across topics. And I think more strategically, when I reflect on the things I learn every day, I periodically ask, how does this one thing that I've learned apply to a different area in my life? Can I apply my knowledge of enterprise software platforms to farming operations? This is a useful technique for those who feel like their day jobs uh, conflict with their true passions. And for most of us who are in this position, blending helps us ensure that even our day jobs contribute to our main passions. So compartmentalization, while yes, useful for keeping things tidy and sane, can sometimes benefit from a periodic mixing in or shake-up. I mean, it's just one life after all. Okay, Whew. that was uh, quite some time spent on just the first theme. And part of that is just the challenge of trying to tie 30-plus episodes together. 
this next theme arose naturally as we asked our guests about the challenges they see in their respective fields and what solutions they think are necessary to solve them. And across all of them, I got the sense that while, yes, there are some very real challenges we face, the fundamental solutions themselves are quite simple. What I mean by that is that we already know what we need to be able to eat healthily, create a more sustainable future, have better relationships with ourselves, each other, and our food. And putting it into practice, however, is far more difficult in no small part because the closer you look into a single issue, it's easier to get wrapped up in the infinite nuances and be paralyzed by the uh, the little details that you forget to zoom out on the simpler truths. Not to mention that a lot of these issues are deeply personal, meaning that we can't really solve anything with just facts devoid of a personal connection. Now, before we look into some of the ways our guests have thought about solving issues in their own fields, um, it's important to acknowledge the very real challenges to the way we produce and consume food that are not significantly new. You could say these are like the pre-existing conditions that have come up because we've, well, we've built a precariously fragile system that values profit margins instead of human empowerment. Eric Sanerud, who's a, a rare breed of young farmers, talked about degrading land quality and the plight of farmers specific to the United States. Already in this country, we have uh, 6% of farmers produce 66% of our agricultural output. So from an economist's point of view, they're like, this is so efficient. Oh, my God. Well, also, it's super risky because what happens if there's climate change, right? That's uh, We already know that's happening. Um, but even uh, a natural disaster that goes through a certain area where 3% of those 6% of people farm um, or an act of bioterrorism, for example. Um, there's so many things that can go wrong and then have a way bigger impact on your economy and then the way we eat um, when there's only 6% of people producing that. And if that's the case today, there's just no reason why when we're losing 90,000 90, farmers and only gaining 1,500, that that, that trend's not going to continue. In the past decade, we've seen a rapid worsening of soil quality, biodiversity on land, sea, and air, economic power of the people who grow our food, overall nutrition, inequality, etc., we still have issues providing farmers, especially black indigenous people of color um, in the U.S. with access, whether it's access to capital, knowledge, data, land that was originally theirs, what have you. Um, and the same goes for indigenous farmers in the Philippines and smallholder farms around the world. Uh, we have issues connecting them with markets, um, expanding our understanding of metrics from simply looking at yield to actual real nutrition. All these problems, you know, there's already a lot of these documented online, so I won't spend the whole episode reiterating statistics here. Through everything I've read over the years, the general feeling of overwhelm I sometimes feel as an individual with the issues we face can be boiled down to a single question that still haunts me today. It's the one that Chef Lenny Russo posed when I first met him in college almost a decade ago. He asked me during an interview of ours for a school project, he said, if you as an interested person, do not know about some of these things happening to our food system, what hope does the regular person have in ever understanding this or making a change? So you hear that and you may be tempted to toss your hands in the air and be trapped in a feeling of being overwhelmed, but there's tens of thousands of people trying to fix these large complex problems from farmer cooperatives in Africa to tech giants in Silicon Valley. You know, my conversations with some of those people can be broken down, I think, into three ways of breaking boundaries between communities, between ideas, and within the self. So let me break those three down. First, in the past few years, there's been a rapid increase in number of companies and funding in the specifically in the ag tech space, agricultural technology space, showing that food is becoming a bigger priority uh, outside of just rural America or rural communities. Of course, there's a flip side to that. You know, we've seen how good intentions can lead to harm, especially when some like Silicon Valley tech bro hotshot thinks he can solve an age old problem by giving some app to the quote unquote simpleton farmer. Uh, this savior complex is as old as the time Americans came to the Philippines with the benevolent mission of educating us savages. 
And hey, we know how that turned out, which brings me to the first way of breaking boundaries. Using more collaborative approaches that empowers communities instead of pursuing solutions within a silo or silver bullet, you know, method. I make sure we approach it from a humble perspective and really listen to what the needs are and what, you know, what our partners would be interested in versus coming in with like a savior mentality mm, of like, oh, mm. so let's do this and yeah, let's, let's change the way you're doing, doing things. That was Justin Garrido, who at the time of recording was partnering with uh, cooperative smallholder farmers in the Philippines to source and distribute heirloom products as a way to empower rural communities. So if you're in a position to help, no matter what role you have, taking the time to build a relationship with the people who are already doing the work will be the time we all need to take in the face of corporate venture capital-fueled hyper-growth culture. The lesson applies to individuals like you and me who aren't necessarily on the ground solving the problems or creating the big structural changes at the top. I think for us, the way we begin to empower communities and shift focus uh, where it needs to go could be as simple as putting our dollar where our mouths are. And I do think that we need to take our place in the economy and understand that how you spend your money makes a difference. If you direct your dollars toward the local regional farm and food economy, you're going to put more money back in it and you're going to make those farmers help those farmers survive mm. and even thrive what a wonderful concept yeah so it's not a it's not a the argument that like i'm just one person like I'm no not... no no i don't buy that at all gotcha. every person has power that was mary cleaver who i mentioned earlier who truly believes in the power of one that as consumers if we take our place in the economy we do have the ability to vote with our dollars and utilize social media to amplify the right messages instead of the ones that big food is selling us thereby tipping the balance towards our communities and away from just the privileged few for example just look what happened with the recent rise of non-dairy milks or the decrease in meat consumption in certain communities and so what other messages do you think we should be or we can be amplifying that would lead to a more nutritious just food system what are other small things you can do with your dollars and meals. That's point one. The second way boundaries are broken goes back to my earlier point about cultivating a wide range of interests because the challenges we face need the sort of multidisciplinary thinking equipped to tackle multiple sides. It's this idea that we cannot simply study a single subject and instead we need to break boundaries between ideas, finding ways to apply learnings from one field to another. Now this approach isn't new. In fact, none of these three boundary-breaking ways, by the way, are, I'm outlining are. It's the basis for innovation in any field. For example, here's Allison Koff, founder and CEO of the ag tech company Artemis, formerly known as Agrilist, a cultivation management platform for enterprise greenhouses who applied her experience in physics and solar energy to indoor farming. Man, I don't know anything about tomatoes. I know nothing yeah. at all about growing produce. This is exactly why I'm asking this question. <laughs> and, and I thought about it for a really long time, but the things that were exciting to me and I think are exciting to a lot of people in this space, mm -hmm. um, you know, food, I think I like to eat, yeah. a lot of people like to eat, um, and we all have to eat by nature. And so the agricultural system as a whole was really exciting to me because it's always going to exist and it's always going to have to grow. Uh, no pun intended. And so I was really intrigued by the space. And then from a technology perspective, the idea of controlling your environment, environment and, and bringing in this idea of energy efficiency that I was used to uh, and trying to focus on the sustainable controlled environment growing where you could hedge against climate, uh, climate change and all these other factors, mm -hmm. to me was this sort of perfect blend of things that I was used to and cared about and things I was really good at doing. Um, and so um, so I did that. And then, you know, a few years later, five years later, I started a company called Agrilist, And that's where we are today. So I mentioned this earlier, but it's that idea that the system is incredibly inefficient. So it's the food system as a whole is actually really, really efficient for a number of reasons, right? We get, we get a lot of calories to people fast. 
I mean, the idea of a supermarket is insane. And so the idea of a supermarket in the United States or in, in Europe or in a lot of these areas, but, but primarily in the U.S., you know, you can, in New York City, you can walk into a supermarket and buy food from any, anywhere. Right. Um, and buy it pretty cheaply. And that's kind of crazy if you think about what yeah. it takes to get that to work. Um, now, it's also really inefficient for a number of reasons because the calories that we're producing, especially in the United States, uh, are often not calories that are uh, tailored for human consumption. Usually they're for animal consumption and animal feed or for processed foods, right. um, you know, corn, wheat, soy, staple crops. And so when you think about what we need to do as a society in the next 10 years, mm -hmm. that is a really interesting efficiency problem. That is a problem that involves food waste and transportation and logistics and manufacturing and production and yeah. people and automation this and data. And this is where the physics mindset comes God. in. Where okay, you so sit there. Sense. Yeah, and you sit there and you say, this is a big problem. Right. And and a lot of people are gonna fix things in this problem. Yeah. Uh, and I wanted to be one of those people. Contrast that from the more downstream retail side with CTO turned coconut jerky manufacturer Seth Seiberg on how his programmer's brain helped him test his way to a great tasting product. I've got programmer brain big time. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I went to school for it and I've been, you know, coding for, for, you know, 16, 17 years now. And it really changes. I think it changes your, like your pathways, mm -hmm. like it, your the way programmers think about things is different than most people. There's like kind of like a systematic way you like pull a problem together into its component parts and then okay. attack each one in a very logical, you know, if this then that way. Rather than like if they abstract. Yeah, like. yeah, yeah. I yeah, I don't I don't know. It may part of it's just organizational skills. I yeah. think you know one of the things that programmers, good programmers, are good at is they're very very organized. And and when you're juggling 150 tasks, and, you know, in in a couple weeks, like that is crucial. That's yeah. super crucial. Um, some other places I think it came out, you know, like I came from like an agile background, mm -hmm. A-B testing, all this stuff. So like kind of kind of taking things with a real agile methodology, mm -hmm. um, doing just enough, just in time. Like um, prototyping and stuff. Yep, prototyping, all that stuff. Like, um, you know, not never plan planning too far ahead, never planning too much, but like, you know, trying to, to build things piecewise um, in, in little little sprints. And this is this was like also very programmy. It started off super casual and informal, and mm -hmm. I just kind of I just like was like messing around mm -hmm. for the first couple, and then it became very Excel spreadsheet driven. Yeah, and so I'd like I'd basically I'd like set up some some various baselines, and then I would um, I would try to create independent variables and change a few different ingredients at a time across like four or five tests, and then I would I would mark them all dehydrate them all and then have a taste of each one and, and mark various qualities down about them um, and then kind of iterate from there. You're listening to Hidden Apron Radio, produced by myself, Paulo Española, and Ricky Ho. Just two ordinary guys trying to break bread and break boundaries. Thoughts, musings, ever just wanted to rant at us? Do let us know at hiddenapron at gmail.com or at hidden underscore apron on both Twitter and Instagram. Back to the show. The last way deals directly with my point earlier of how problems cannot be solved with data alone and must address real personal beliefs and emotions we hold as individuals. Perhaps the most important of all emotions uh, is fear. You know, the fear that makes us take these issues too personally and inhibit us from making clearer, stronger decisions. If we are to create lasting change, we cannot start with just facts and charts, but instead look at what drives human behavior, be they a farmer struggling against low commodity prices or a low-income family that just wants nutritious food at an affordable price, right? Each side is going to have their own sets of beliefs. To be honest, it's people. The, for the mechanics, you can plan it, you can strategize, you have to give time for the, so the soil to heal. Um, you have to understand what are the different you know, elements that you need to put in the soil to accelerate the healing. Um, and then you need to understand like what, what the plant needs, how to nourish it. But as soon as you understand those things, you can plan that, right? But the hardest thing to plan and the hardest thing to do is change behavior. I really want to underscore the point that 
debt is such a huge issue in a farmer's life. It's this idea that as a farmer, you're in this constant fear of yield. So that's the main barrier, I think. So they're in debt, they're scared, they're worried. And then you ask them to do something which in the, not even in the long term, like years, but in, in a longer term than, than they're used to thinking, which is, you know, in the span of a month or three months. So I agree with Rita. And that's why I say like behavior is the biggest problem to conversion because one, they're in debt and therefore they have There's kind that, of that like sense of a sense of fear. Uh, yeah, it's almost like, you know, you, you have to pay back that debt. And so you're looking for certainty, right? Mm. And security, because you have to pay back that debt. It's like the gun in your head type situation. That was Ayesha Verayu talking about how fear and human behavior were the hardest part about tackling hunger in the community she works with in rural Philippines. And while there are real issues stemming from how our society is structured, we cannot negate the effect of fear often forced upon us and that effect that it has on our agency. You know, it's this fear that marketers take advantage of when they hawk the newest superfood or trend to you. And and really, a lot of this marketing has skewed our perception of what food really should and could be, which is that it is a fundamental human right and not this like mystical thing to be feared. And we can only get it from the so-called experts if you have the money for it. At Securian, I learned a lot about fear. In the financial services world, fear is a selling point. It's one position. Uh, so what I mean by that is like, like life insurance, for example, you know, you, you, you buy it because you're scared that when your family, when you pass, your family won't have um, the tools and resources necessary. Now, some people position that as fear. Some people position it as making a responsible decision. So there's different ways to position it. But at the end of the day, you know, you're having a conversation about your death and, you know, how you want your family to be taken care of. So I think, you know, from that, you've learned that fear drives a lot of purchase behavior, right? It drives, it, it drives behavior in general, right? When you're scared, you start doing things that make sense or in some cases don't even make sense. Actually, this is funny. So I, I've never connected the fact that I've done this because of my time at Securian, but I will say this. A common thing that we do when we're wholesaling or even in our store is like, yo, this shit's going to run out. <laughs> like, you know, pe no, people will be like, because it's seasonal, right? Things will run out, right? Like during particular times of the year, we'll be like, yo, this is, there are 10 packs left. Like you better buy them all right now because you're not going to get it when you come in next week. That is fear, right? <laughs> Straight up. And that's not me lying to you. I'm just being honest. Like that's, yeah. that's going to happen. That was Arun Motilal, owner of Galaxy Foods, which is a purveyor of Indo-Caribbean goods in Minnesota, speaking on what he's learned about fear that has become applicable even to the mundane business of grocery store sales. Now, before you dismiss this because you are some uber-rational person who isn't swayed by emotion, I invite you to consider this. There are big companies that have entire departments and people working full-time to figure out how to get you to buy their products. You are human, and you are not immune to the manipulation of flavors to maximize addiction or clever marketing ads that tie group identity to certain diets, whether you're paleo or vegan, not that either of those um, are wrong in any sense. You know, fortunately, though, food is more forgiving than we think, and we can combat this imposed fear and its resulting fatigue and jadedness with a sense of wonder and faith, uh, a breaking of the boundaries within the self. I posed this question of belief to both Josh Reisner, a high schooler who's been on the Master Chef Junior TV show and who's worked with some of the best restaurants here in New York, and again, Amy Bessa, who's a veteran restaurateur an outspoken advocate for Filipino food long before Filipino became popular, you could say, in the U.S. Here's Josh's answer to why kids don't cook. I feel like because kids are, are smaller than adults and a lot of kids, people think that kids don't can't be as responsible around huh. things like fire. I mean, and also maybe people think that palates of kids are not as sophisticated so like when people think of kid food they think of like chicken fingers I was gonna say and chicken fries nuggets, yeah chicken nuggets and fries or like a simple really simple grilled cheese but like that's not all that kids eat 
And here's Amy's answer as to how she can remain unjaded. You know, a lot of people look, but they don't see. You know, a lot of people hear, they don't listen. A lot of people taste, but they don't savor. You know, I look at everything for the romance and the potential of every single thing. Nothing escapes me. It's something that I've developed. So I can make something out of something that a lot of people will ignore. You ignore, you undervalue. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't ignore, I don't undervalue. Mm-hmm. And I look for new things. If you have that mindset, you will never get jaded, never. Because, you know, everything I see is amazing. No, if you really think about it, no. Every piece of food that gets to you, just think about where it came from. And you know, it's am- well, you know what is amazing? If you have a plate of vegetables, even just the rice, the heirloom rice. Yeah. Just imagine how it got to you. Yeah. How did it survive thousands of years? That means families, generations of families kept replanting it so that future generations can taste it. And why do they replant it? You know why? Because they liked it enough. The funny thing is both of them are on opposite ends of the age spectrum, but consider their wisdom. I think one small thing I can recommend uh, to address this fear is to focus on just the people closest to you. I know in our day and age, the focus is always on growth, scale, more, more, more. But you know, consider this thought from Arun, echoing Mary Cleaver's uh, worshipping the goddess of small. I think my frame-up of scale and growth was learned directly from Target. And I was there when things started falling apart, if you will. They were, they were scaling. They had gone into Canada, and they fell on their face in Canada, if you will. Um, and that was scale. They, they couldn't manage it. They went too big, too quickly, without having the operational backbone to manage it. and they exited. Now, I don't consider that a failure from the extent of, you know, you're always learning. But when you look at it from like a financial and an investor perspective, it, it didn't work and the market didn't take to it. So I think that experience, specifically Canada, and then watching Target shrink itself down, it, it was a slap in the face of like, oh, okay, being big isn't always good because you compromise a lot of other things sometimes and sometimes you're compromising your soul you know just to get to that size because you're making deals with the devil yeah or if you, know? you make a if you scale up an inefficient or or worse uh a bad yeah. process that in 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 one store doesn't seem like much but scale that across it actually ends up being like totally detrimental and you're exactly correct that was my job that was what i did i i was i was hired because there was one particular process that in a couple stores didn't make a difference. But when you multiply it over 1800, we were spending five to $10 million in excess a year. Mm. You're almost making the case that everyone should operate small businesses. I'm making the case that everybody should think about it that way. I think we often hold this mistaken impression that if we aren't influencing thousands with our actions, we have failed and nothing can be further from the truth making a lasting positive change with your friends and family is worth way more than a thousand one-time actions. I mean, at the very least, it's better than the unintentional effects of unchecked growth in the thoughtless Zuckerbergian move fast, break things kind of way. Here at Hidden Apron, most of what we do caters to a small group of people that we built relationships with over multiple meals. After we've slowly realized that focusing on our day ones, you know, our home team, the crew, is the best thing we can do. To those who still doubt the simultaneous necessity to break fear to fix food and food's power to break fear, let me leave you with this story from Jabber Elbihani, founder of Comida, a digital platform that at the time was hosting a series called Displaced Dinners that featured a refugee chef who would cook a meal from their culture while sharing their own stories of being a refugee. He talks about the transformative power of food and shifting perspectives and how the dinner table allows us to see the common humanity we share 
beyond the talking heads of the sensationalist news. This was one of our first displaced dinners. And it, we, it was a little intimate table, yeah. 10 people. And um, there just so happened to be a Black Lives Matter activist and a Trump supporter. Yeah, so this was not even planned, not one right, bit. Right, right, right. Um, so they, they voluntarily purchased tickets, which is music to my ears. Why did you think he came, by the way? I'm just curious. Uh, curiosity. Curiosity. I mean, it's or like, she. Sorry. Yeah, I totally she. Assumed. Yes. Um, it, it's curiosity. I, I believe that people want, people want a different perspective. Not all. But there's a segment of people who continuously hear the same noise over and over and over and over, and they just want a new genre, mm -hmm. just to see if there's something really out there. You will also see other news every now and then of like opposing thoughts. And then you wonder, why do people think this way? Why do people feel so strongly about this thing? Now they're at the table together. They're talking. And eventually Lutfi comes out, the refugee, sharing his story and talking. And then as they're continuing, they're asking questions, but... I believe that he he asked a question, very kind of like, I guess, a bit antagonizing. And I guess the activist kind of took something to it. Like she, she was mm. taken back. And then they started having a very civil conversation. Mm. Just kind of like sharing her perspective and giving analogies. And kind of Lutfi sharing his story, his perspective on things as well. And then him kind of just watching him engage back. Mm -hmm. Right? Kind of sharing his perspective and why he thinks X, Y, Z. That is something that I believe he came for. Let me engage with people who have the opposite mindset. And, and they both found that. She found it as the activist, mm -hmm. for, you know, understanding why he supported him and vice versa. And, you know, he said, that, like, my perspective has shifted, but it does not change my entire viewpoint. Yeah. Right. Right. right? Which is fine. Minuscule changes make the biggest impact. I, 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 if, if we were to have him leave and say, okay, fuck Trump. Did you really make an impact? Keep him thinking, right? Keep him open, right? Now he's opened up a little bit. We gave the people the platform to hear, engage, understand one another, all over food, right? So it's kind of enlightening in a way. We, we, we want to make a difference, but we as New Yorkers, we don't know how because we are so consumed with our time, our work. Mm -hmm. I found my form of activism through Comida. Mm -hmm. I leveraged what I had and I'm leveraging a, an opportunity to kind of share these perspectives. Just a little side note on my own experiences in self-education and awareness. I am recording this episode in the summer of 2020, and in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and other Black folk and the global protests against the systemic racism that has overwhelmingly affected Black and brown communities, I've, I've become a lot more aware of how many of our problems we have in our food in America and our, around the world are inextricably linked with racism past and present. It's a problem that cannot be unseen once you've seen it, um, as is what happened with me from the fact that like food media today continues to be white-centered, the income and wealth disparity people of color experience, the exploitative nature of American-led farming practices built upon centuries of slave labor, you know, as, as a non-American, I'm only now grappling with the facts I've willfully ignored in years past. And so just as we cannot talk about global issues like climate change and the economy without also talking about food, we cannot talk about food without also confronting the racism that the system was built upon and continues to perpetuate today. It's one way my views have evolved over the last four years. And one of the small steps I'm now taking is diversifying my food media consumption, supporting more minority-owned businesses, and using my platform to amplify voices that are often ignored by the media. And I think this is a lifelong process, this, this evolution. So back to the three points. Our challenges are very real, though largely not new. They are definitely solvable with novel and existing ways of breaking boundaries between community ideas. These ways of boundary breaking require an enormous amount of structural change only achievable through government or policy shifts and international cooperation, especially now that COVID-19 is eroding trust in the hyper-globalized system we've built in decades. And I think the overwhelming majority of messaging usually is that, oh, it's an individual choice that it starts with us. But yes, a lot of change has to happen at the top. However, the work can start within the self and addressing our own thinking and those nearest to us is the best place to begin with. 
I want to be clear, though, that I'm not saying this is going to be easy or that we need to find some blanket solution that fit most people. What I am saying is that we must take the broader message of our solutions, the fundamentals, you could say, for example, eat less meat, and tailoring it to our specific situations. In the meat example, it might mean continuing to cook meat at home, but opting to order the seafood vegetarian option when eating out. It's an approach most of us already know works when it comes to how we eat. You know, we know that no single diet will work for every person. And even within diets, there are numerous ways of carrying them out. Isang Smith, who is an athlete, for example, in our interview, described her diet in broad strokes, saying how many servings of certain food she tried to get at general times of the day, while James Anunciacion, who is a father and product manager, who at the time of the recording was fasting for Ramadan and had just come off a weight loss program, was a lot more regimented, and he talked in like specific grams of macronutrients. So, you know, it's it's not always the competitive athlete, athlete who's counting calories. And in the same way, we have to be thoughtful in how we tailor our solutions, whether it's diet or otherwise, to the problems we face. So focus on these small, thoughtful steps while continuing to do the things that make you a responsible global citizen and not just, I don't know, another data point, whether that's educating yourself on the issues you care about and voting, if you enjoy that privilege, for the people who will make the big, hairy policy changes I mentioned earlier. Wherever you are, Don't let perfectionism keep you from starting, whether it's cooking or otherwise, as Eileen Suzara, who's a chef, farmer, and educator, puts it. I I often find that people of any ability, but especially with beginners, uh, might think, oh, you know, if I don't have like the perfect ingredient that this recipe is calling for, then I can't make it or it's going to be messed up. And I think just the, the sense of, you know, make it happen with whatever you happen to have in the time. Maybe you don't have a great chef knife. That's fine. Don't let that be the barrier to to cooking something. Or if you have imperfect produce, it can be just as delicious as um, something that is, you know, sparkly clean and, and sold at the top price. We've now chatted about food's universality, the nature of our challenges, and now we close out with the third theme that rose out of our many questions delving into the mindset of our guests. It is that it all starts with why and the stories we tell ourselves. Let's start with one of the most common demons besetting anyone trying to follow their own path, self-doubt. It's the idea that perhaps none of this is worth it or you can't do it or any number of other defeatist self-talk, defeatist stories that we tell ourselves. To that, many of our guests said this, it just takes one win. That no matter how many setbacks, pauses, and reroutes you face, a single win can make it all worth it. Here's my friend Chelsea White, who is now a famous baker slash vlogger who's appeared on Food Network and is on Instagram at Sweets. Uh, we started our food blog at around the same time, also both public accountants, and At the time we interviewed her, she was still juggling marathon running with her baking and day job. And she talked about how it only took a single win to catapult her from relative obscurity, for lack of a better word, to stardom. I wasn't like trying to be like, I'm going to bake solely for my Instagram. It was just like, oh, I baked this. I'm going to take a picture of it in indoor lighting that's terrible and no one will like. But, um, and then I was just kind of doing that and then... I got featured by infatuation and then I started like grow my account started growing and slowly kind of tumbled into like more and more. Infatuation's uh eats, right? Yeah. Or like hashtag eats. Yeah. So when you cause I actually never I don't think I've ever asked you when you said like it only took one. It you does. weren't kidding. It no. was just infatuation. Um I think I think I had like six hundred followers just from like life. Yeah. And um I think from that feature, I got to like over a thousand and I think you just need something to help you get over that initial hurdle. And then if you use hashtags and like, you'll eventually get other features or you're making like things that, you know, good content that other right. people like. Hillary Reeves, who has also been blogging about food for a long time, describes how she defines success. Success for me, I think, is I just feel satisfied with it with the post okay so most of the time and i think this is true with anyone in any project that you work on you put something out into the world and you're like i'm not 100 percent happy with this yeah i would change this i could rewrite this but you know what i just have to let it go yeah um but once in a while there is a post where you're like this is 
it. I did it. (laughs) So, I mean, the banana bread donuts one felt like that. I was like, these photos are perfect. Yeah. The recipe I know is great. It's going to work. And then it did. And sometimes things take off and you're like, whoa, who cared about that? So when it, like, meets up, when things get traffic and are interesting to other people and you feel like, okay, that really worked for me, I think that's when I feel most successful. Right, it's the intersection of, like, when the public appreciate something that you yourself also appreciate. Exactly. Now, you could say this is a call for patience and persistence, and, and it is. However, put another way, what we think may be a negative, the losses and the setbacks, at first glance is often just fertilizer. Another pun, sorry. I keep doing this. For that one positive breakthrough. Chefs Rodelio Aglebot, Chef AC Burral, and the Lola Rosa team all talked about the the death and losing of someone important to them to inspire them to pursue what they're doing right now. To show you what he meant to me in my culinary, I guess, career, mm-hmm. when he passed in February, he passed on a Tuesday, but that Sunday we had a rice and shine brunch scheduled already. Um, spoke with my mom and my sister on Wednesday, and on Thursday we decided that we were going to go through with it, that we are going to keep going because that's what he would have wanted. And that brunch was very cathartic for me, man. And I added a fried chicken dish. That was his recipe as a tribute to him. And that was the dish for the rest of the month. But when he passed, it was a very grounding experience. And that's really when I started realizing that Mm -hmm. the way that he took care of people through food, that's what I took from him. Like the intention behind it. On the flip side, I think there's also something to be said about winning. I've worked many years in the business world, and so I'm very conscious of the fact that even when we use the word winning, we are framing things as competitions that have winners and losers. You know, my old CEO often spoke about crushing the competition rather than working with partners to solve human problems. And look, I get it. But the majority of our guests have said we should instead be framing our challenges as opportunities for collaboration and contribution rather than territories to protect learning about other viewpoints not to disprove them but simply to add to your understanding of the world here's joanne boston whose long track record in community organizing and filipino food informs her approach to conflict be part of the conversation yeah you could start a conversation and and go rant about it but be part of the solution as well Yeah, yeah you know you can't go into a comment and say you know the way you're doing it is wrong Okay, if somebody did say this is how you're supposed to do it mm-hmm. and they tagged this in it, I would go back to the post and say, oh, okay, I see where you're coming from. You know, this is why you're doing it this way. So if somebody opened up that conversation with us and really, you know, took the time to, to show us this is not the only way to do it, then of course I would greatly appreciate it instead of just bashing on somebody's dish. That, yeah. that goes nowhere. That goes nowhere. Add to that the thoughts of my friends Alexa Alfaro of the Meat on the Street food truck in Milwaukee and Katrina and Cristina Villavicencio of Timpla, D.C. on the problem of an us-versus-them mentality that exists even within supposedly you know, united communities. What's going to happen to our culture when you pass away? Because you're like 30, 40 years old. Because no one can make the adobo the way you can. Yes, yes. yes. And I'm like, well, what's going to happen to our culture when you pass away if you refuse to support the trend it's heading in now? Because yeah. it's us. This is yeah. this is the future of our culture is mm-hmm. here. It's And I'm so thankful that like this generation, we all yeah, feel the same. Like, we're like, there needs, so, yeah. we need to break molds here. Like this yeah. is outdated. Definitely. And I'm like, if you don't want to support that, then the good stuff you have to offer that we don't know we'll never get to because you create such a conflict. When it comes to wanting to make a positive impact on the world around us, we may best be served by redefining what it means to win. From one of total domination to one of slow, steady progress towards uplifting the people you serve. Here's Chef R.G. Enriquez, who's one of the few and most prolific chefs cooking vegan Filipino food on how she continues her work when the majority of people can't even imagine Filipino food without meat? I mean, I got to choose my battles. Like, I can't really just focus on these people that are not receptive to what I make and be more, focus more on the positives because as long as there are more, it's not like I don't listen to feedback. Of course, I will listen to feedback. It's just that if 
I have to look at the ratio. If there's if more people are are fine with it, then I think it's a good sign. Now I know a lot of these examples are specific to eating and dining or even cooking, and a lot of them are Filipino, but they all are about how we frame our stories. And you can apply this to whatever field you're working in. Notice how they started with why and, and the stories and being conscious of that. Notice how they talked about success, purpose, progress. At the heart of it all, I think it's something I've been talking about long before I even became like, I don't know, the food guy amongst my friends, which is know why you're doing something. Know that it's okay for the what and the how to change over time. And, you know, once in a while, even the why might change. But always, always ask the question why. It's an age-old and admittedly difficult question that sometimes gets met more with annoyance than lighthearted curiosity. But I think it's a question worth asking long before what, how, when, where. From nutrition. I'd ask myself first the question about lifestyle and where does food fit in currently. I, I really like focusing on the psychology of things. Um, but I think that a person should really kind of tap into that mentality, like the reason why they're choosing to um, get onto, like if they want to do a diet or they want to start structuring their meals and find out what fits best into their day. To religion. With any goal that you're trying to achieve, it's always important to remember why you're doing this in the first place. So it's always it's always a good reminder that when things are getting hard, it's, well, why did I do this in the first place? And fasting is a time where you're really in solidarity with the less fortunate. So what I tell myself is that, well, if things are getting hard, there's someone out there that is in a worse situation or don't have an iftar to look forward to. To language learning. So understanding that uh, language is a long-term process, it's a, uh, it's a process, process that never really ends, but it's a process that if you, if you discover, is, is a process of self-discovery. If you discover what works for you and you dedicate and you put uh, hours towards it, you can be able to communicate in a relatively short amount, amount of time, but it's not something that you will ever stop learning. Knowing why can make all the difference. By the way, those were Isang Smith, Doha Salem, and Isabel Mora. Why is the very question Tita Amy asked me multiple times before I realized, finally, that owning a restaurant was in fact not my dream. It was through asking that question when I realized it was way bigger than just the act of cooking from which Hidden Apron started from. It was really about seeing food as a storytelling device, a common language, a peacekeeper, a boarding pass, a teleporter, a time travel machine, a history book, a healer, an icebreaker, a political statement, an aphrodisiac. You know, right now, my why is using food as a way for us to connect to our own stories and grow individually and together. For me, producing this show, continuing to mold hidden apron and ask the question why, I found that food has become my way of making my doing, capital D, and being, capital B, meat, as Delena Benevente, who was also featured in the New Filipino Kitchen Cookbook, along with myself, Joanne, Alexa, and the Villa Vicencio sisters puts it. My day job is is what I do, but this stuff, the writing, the cooking, the the food, the connecting with the people, that's who I am. If I can if I can figure out how to make a living doing who I am instead of doing what I do, <laughs> that's yeah. an ideal life for anybody. That's a very charmed life. Food has become a way for me to figure out my place in this messy world where people don't really fit into neat little boxes, as Josh would put it. It's not that everyone needs to learn how to cook. It's that everyone should find something that really represents them. And since food is actually really important for everyone, it's not just about you eat to so you don't die. It's about really finding something that represents you and something that you could relate to everyone else with. Just like sports to me, not everyone plays the same sport. Not everyone plays football. Not everyone plays soccer. But everyone, every single culture out there has some sort of food that represents them. In a way, food is 
how I'm finding my way home, as the late Chef Rodelio, the food Buddha, puts it. When you say what's home, it's a state of mind. I'm going to Buddha on you. It's like I'm called the food Buddha because not about because I look like one. Which I really like. <laughs> <laughs> it's because it, because food to me it. it Everything we create starts with intent, period, right? And that intent comes from somewhere that makes who you are up. That's home. So, recapping our three themes. First, food is never just food. Second, our problems with food may be real and challenging, but the fundamental solutions themselves are simple and always starts with our own mindset. And third, probably most importantly, know why ask why and with that for those who are still listening to the very end i thank you for listening to my rambles i thank all my guests who are overwhelmingly female and people of color who are the true foundations of our global food system i thank every listener who shared this journey especially if you've shared your thoughts and feedback with me i thank my co-founder ricky for continuing to make hidden apron look and sound fresh I thank all of you for continuing to think about this messy thing called life instead of mindlessly swallowing whatever falls through the grinder. I hope that this gives you some food for thought. And as always, let's break bread and let's break boundaries.